All right. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm from way up north, another country there, um, the Bay Area. So um, it, is, it is really, really good to be here. Last time I joined you, it was uh, via a recording. Um, so I was just a bunch of pixels. So it's a privilege uh, to actually be here in presence and in person. And if this last year has taught us anything, it's just the value, um, the power of being together with somebody in physical presence. So um, I, I pastor a church in the Bay Area called Valley Community Church. And um, again, though, it is a joy to be here with you. So um, Ryan has given me uh, an incredible uh, passage um, today. And uh, my hope is that this is helpful. Uh, but ultimately, my hope is that uh, we walk out of here just delighting in the beauty of who Christ is and what he has done in this world. And so before I say anything more, um, let's give the, the prime spot uh, to God's word. And I'm wondering if you'd do something with me. Would you just stand with me for a moment? If you're able to stand, would you stand with me um, as a way with our bodies to, to honor the word of God? Um, this is Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Here's what it says. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Heavenly Father, we get to call you Father. What an incredible truth. And so we thank you for your word that has come to us, your scriptures that has come to us ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would behold your beauty today through your word, that we would see Christ by the power of your spirit. Would you do in our hearts what we cannot do ourselves? Sharpen our minds, soften our hearts, Lord. Uh, we love you. We need you. Help us to truly delight in you, our only hope. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In his strange and beautiful and brilliant novel called The Idiot, Dostoevsky said, beauty will save the world. Beauty will save the world. He was right, but not in the way that many of us interpret it. He's not speaking of a the sparkle and flash. He's not speaking of the well-toned and well-manicured body and face. He's not speaking of the envy-inducing snapshots of exotic travels and the cultivated lives that we see scrolling for eyes daily. No, there's a beauty. There is a deep beauty that is at unhurried work, redeeming and restoring this world, making all things right. Now this morning, we continue in this new series, The Kaleidoscopic Gospel, and, and Pastor Ryan set you all up very well, preparing us to look at gospeling or evangelizing in relation to beauty and truth and power. 
and hope. So today, we're going to turn our eyes to the beauty of the gospel. Now, the word kaleidoscope, it's brilliantly fitting. It comes from two Greek words, uh, kalos and skopos. Kalos means something that's beautiful, something that's magnetic, something that attracts you to it, something that inspires you, something that pulls you forward so, so you lean in, kalos. And, and skopos, uh, that's the word to look at, right? That's where we get the word scope, right? So in other words, it's an instrument to look at something beautiful, which is why kaleidoscopes all over the world for, for centuries uh, have been um, mesmerizing to, to children, to adults. I remember looking at them when I was little, just mesmerized. We love to look at what's beautiful, right? We love to gaze at what's beautiful. It's what we're designed for, actually. And, and in light of that, as Christians, we are also designed to display beauty, to, to show beauty, to be theaters of beauty, our relationships with others are windows to the beauties of the gospel. Our relationships with others are windows into the beauties of the gospel. We are ambassadors in this world, and as ambassadors, we are representatives of something greater than ourselves, ambassadors of someone and something beautiful. Now, as Ryan spoke of last week, Act 16 is like a kaleidoscope of the gospel. It's different prismatic scenes. Um, it's colorful vignettes. They show us different facets of the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's doing in the, in the world. And in our scene today, uh, the short little vignette regarding uh, Timothy, well, it's, it's loaded with beauty in its deceptively simple and uh, compact telling. So there's an economy of words here. But in this economy of words, there is a ton to feast on. So we'll have to, uh, we won't hit it all today, but we'll do what we can. So let's work through it light, uh, bit by light bearing bit. Um, and then I'll give you some backstory uh, because we're jumping into this thing in medias res, so to speak, right? In the middle, in the middle of things. So um, verse one, let's look at that again. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. All right, so here we begin with Paul. Paul, once an enemy of the gospel. He is a radically changed man who has seen the risen Christ, seen the, the scars on his hands, and now he has been commissioned. He has been drawn into the great commission to take the good news to a broken, fragmented, groaning, uh, distorted world. And he's been doing just that, right? He's been traveling, he's been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been planting churches, and he's been getting beaten up. He seems to be an expert in getting beaten up, right? He's been run out of town, thrashed with mob violence, beaten with sticks and stones and, and fists and kicks, whips and words, all used against him to hurt him, to stop him. The gospel that he was to preach was good, was beautiful and true, but his commission was not cush. It was not convenient. It wasn't easy. It was, it was difficult, and it was full of, of hardship, as you know. And so here in our passage, we see Paul. He comes to Derby. He comes to Lystra. Uh, we have a map here. Um, this, this kind of stuff helps me. I hope it helps you just to get kind of our, our geographic context here. You can see this is Paul's second missionary journey, and you see Derby and Lystra there. They are in South Central Asia Minor. Uh, what we commonly know today as, as uh, Turkey, right? Modern-day Turkey. 
So when Paul comes in this passage, this isn't his first rodeo in these towns in this region. He's been there before, right? This is his second missionary journey. So, so he's walked uh, this soil before. He's come before uh, preaching, teaching, church planning, and again, getting uh, beaten up. But he's back, which in itself is an incredible thought that the hardships were there the first round, but he's back. He loves the church. These churches are his family, so he is there to care for them. Now, it's here in this region where Paul and Timothy's relationship begins. So let's get our bearing now on Timothy. He's key. Timothy is crucial to Paul's ministry. Timothy is crucial to the New Testament. Timothy is is crucial to our lives. He's a key figure in the New Testament. And I understand these events we're about to read happened 2,000 years ago, but this is This is personal for us. It should be personal for us. This is our family story. And so let's enter into it thinking about it that way. So Timothy, he's a ministry partner um, to Paul, right? He's Paul's protege, right? Uh, Jedi Paul's Padawan, so to speak. He was entrusted with key missions. Um, Loads of responsibility were given to Timothy by Paul. He was Paul's representative, to a number of churches, to the church of Corinth, to the church of Philippi. He was commissioned to be the pastor of a huge church. Well, not huge in size necessarily, but huge in significance, a strategic church in the city of Ephesus. And I believe you guys have recently been through a series um, on Ephesians, so so you know that that was a very influential, very strategic church um, to get messages out abroad across the sea and then further inland, right? So very important church, and he was commissioned to oversee that. Um, Timothy was influential um, in his time with Paul when it comes to the writing of several New Testament letters, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, uh, Philemon. Of course, two letters are written, addressed to Timothy, right? 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, It's an easy one to remember. And uh, it's Timothy. It's Timothy that Paul wants to be with him. When Paul knows his days are coming to an end, he longs for Timothy. He considers him his dear son. And we even learn all sorts of things about Timothy. We learn in 1 Timothy 5 that he has some kind of chronic physical issue that needs to be addressed. So Paul prescribes a bit of Merlot, maybe some uh, Pinot Noir right from Napa Valley, just to help with his digestive issues. So clearly, Timothy is important. Uh, he means a great deal to Paul. It's obvious as we read through the scripture. So what was it about him? What was it about Timothy that made him such a key part of this mission? And how was it? And how was it that Timothy came to follow this Jesus? Why was he so captivated by this Jesus that he would enter into the hardship of this calling and this Mission. Well, I think we're going to see um, some of that. So in our verse today, so looking back again at verses 1 and 2 here, um, we see something that we might miss if we read it too quickly. So let's slow down and let's, let's re-see it. Because Timothy is someone who's caught between two worlds. He's caught between two worlds. He's living in a liminal space, so to speak. He lives in the Roman province. Um, he lives in a Roman province. His mother is a faithful Jew, and his dad is a Greek. And so what we see here most likely is he grew up, he lives in a a religiously divided or a worldview-divided home. His mother was faithful to the scriptures, right? Uh, Torah, uh, the prophets, uh, the writings, right? What we call the Old Testament. She was faithful. She, she loved the word of God. 
But we find out that, that Timothy is not circumcised, and Paul ends up circum- circumcising him later, um, which is quite an uncomfortable topic, but we'll deal with that a little bit. Um, why wasn't he circumcised? Whose job was that? Well, that's the dad's job. Obviously, dad didn't care about that. Mom cares. Dad doesn't. Timothy's not circumcised. We see the split. We see this division uh, in the, the home. So he's lived in a liminal space between worlds. Who was he? I imagine as a young guy, Timothy had some, some issues, wrestlings with identity. Who in the world am I? One can only imagine how he wrestled with what was good, beautiful, and true in a world that was crowded with Greek gods, in a world that was pushed on by allegiance to Caesar, yet also a world for Timothy that was overseen and run by Yahweh, right? So I imagine he had some issues, some things to think through, just like all of us. Now, Lysha and Derby did um, not have synagogues. Um, in other words, there wasn't a, a minion or a, a quorum of 10 guys there in order to have you know, a, a public uh, worship service. So that means there's very few Jews here in, in this area. And then again, that just shows us that Timothy knew the pressures. He knew the pains of being a minority, of being an outsider. Right? Yet despite the confusion, despite the pressures, despite, despite the oppression, Timothy didn't cave, right? He didn't cave to the popular and the accepted. He threw in his lot with his Jesus. He was going to be an apprentice of this Jesus, and it would cost him. So how is it that he came about to follow this Jesus? Well, the first thing that we should make clear is it's because of God's saving grace, because of God's radical grace, because of the miracle, because of the work of Christ that that. Timothy might be united by the power of the Spirit to this God because grace chased after him, because God initiates, God runs towards those who are broken and need restoration. So God did a miracle, right? God is the first mover here in all of our salvations. God said yes to Timothy in Jesus before Timothy ever said yes to Jesus by his own power, right? So um, God spoke and brought the dead to life. So that being the case, um, I just, we need to have that in our minds before we move on. The, the next thing that we need to understand is, um, and this is our focus here, Timothy came to know this Jesus because of means. God works through means in this world, right? He works through means. He worked through the people. He worked through the relationships that were in Timothy's life, relationships that pointed to Jesus. Grace worked through those relationships. The beauty of the gospel was evidence. It was experienced because of people he knew. So let's look at the beauty of the gospel that comes through these relationships, and I'll, I'll highlight three of these relationships. Um, and think of these relationships like stained glass windows, right? Um, uh, color and beauty and design and pattern and order all comes through these things. But ultimately, as you look at these stained glass windows, uh, it points you back towards the light source that is bringing life to the beauty that you're seeing. And so these relationships, our relationships, can function and act like stained glass windows. Now, before moving forward, um, let's talk about plausibility structures here uh, for a moment. I think this is really helpful. Um, and it's important to note that all of our relationships work as plausibility structures. Um, so uh, what does that mean? Um, 
you might have heard the, the term, maybe, maybe not, maybe Ryan's put it forward, uh, I'm not sure, but in sociology, um, primarily in the study of, of religion, plausibility structures are uh, sociocultural contexts or frameworks of meaning by which we understand the world, uh, by which we understand what exists, what doesn't, what is real, what's not. So in other words, uh, plausibility structures are culturally embedded ideas and practices. They're culturally embedded ideas and practices that influence and shape what we are likely to believe or not believe, right? None of us is neutral, just kind of floating in the world without any outside stuff trying to form us. Things are forming us all day long. They've been forming us since the day we've been born. And so there's these plausibility structures, things we've witnessed and seen and experienced in our life that, that lead to us believing or not believing in something. So for example, um, if someone grows up in uh, an abusive uh, home or just a toxic home like many of us have, like let, let's say um, it's just a, a broken relationship with a father, a father who is, who is absent, um, or maybe he's there, but he's just distant, or, or he's, he's abusive. And all you know is, is abandonment and frustration and hurt and disappointment. So when you come to church and you hear somebody say, Father God, right away there's a gag reflex. Right away there's this non-plausibility for you to go, oh, that's great. Because what you know about reality is incredibly different than what you're hearing about this Father God. And so you feel a dissonance, right? But say you have a Father who's compassionate, who's been there for you, who's loving, who's gracious, who, who got down on his knees to help you through those difficult things that you were going through, who found a way to communicate to you. Now you come to church and you hear that God is a Father and the plausibility structure is put in place. And you go, if God were truly like, like a father, how wonderful that would be, right? See, now, now there's a likeliness or plausibility in believing that, that claim. You know, and there's, there's basically, you can think of it like three key barriers for someone um, understanding or accepting the gospel. So let, let's call those three key barriers... Um, the intellectual barrier, the emotional barrier, and the volitional barrier. Intellectual barriers. People grow up hearing about the gospel to them. It's just a fable. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. They've heard really crappy arguments about what the gospel is or what happened or the veracity or the truthfulness of the history of the scriptures. And they're just like, I don't, just, I don't believe it. But there's really good answers to a lot of those things. Like we are to think beautifully, to think clearly, and to articulate well um, the, the truthfulness of, of the gospel, the historicity of it. And so there's great answers to a lot of those intellectual barriers. But there's emotional barriers, right? There's existential kinds of barriers where we, let, let's say we've had a really awful relationship with the church in the Western world. And so we just think of it as, you know, a... Uh, a group of a bunch of self-righteous, judgmental jerks. And we've never had a good relationship there. And so we have an emotional barrier. There's ways to overcome those emotional barriers. And the key there is, is loving people well, actually being in relationship with them and loving them well. The third barrier, though, is the volitional barrier. Uh, and we can't do a thing about it. 
There's no way we can reach in and change somebody's hearts, change somebody's desire, change how, how somebody actually sees the world, right? We can't do that. God has to change the heart, but he often does that through us approaching and uh, entering into and engaging these other barriers, the emotional um, and the intellectual barriers. He works through means, right? He works through us, which is just mind-blowing to me, that he would work through us. And modern Western society has built innumerable, innumerable incoherent secular plausibility structures. From government to entertainment to history to science, virtually every cultural institution, discipline, and academy moves forward with a deep assumption that there is no God. And if there is a God, it's not the God of the scriptures. And whatever this God is really doesn't have much to do with our daily life. And really has no claim over our morality or what we do with who we are. So Christianity is implausible. It's nonsensical. It's just a bad hangover from a past where people drank too deeply from a superstitious well. It's just mindless religion. It's a fable. It's, it's a myth. And we're sober now, right? We've progressed. We've moved forward and beyond these things. In fact... Plausibility structures put forward at almost every level of culture have, have had Christians move from those who were once called do-gooders over here. Now they are shuttled into this category and they're seen as do-batters, <laughs> for lack of a better term, right? Uh, bigoted and backwards. Bigoted and backwards. Not just annoying, but actually evil. I mean... We need to, we need to um, be welcoming and, and accepting, and those Christians, they just, you know, they don't play by the same rules, right? They're not just bothersome, but they're the problem. See, uh, these plausibility structures have shifted and changed over the decades. So untold numbers of narratives that we consume, that we binge watch on Netflix, Hulu, whatever, um, are, are cultivating these anti-God possibility structures that people are growing up in. And we go, oh yeah, of course Christianity doesn't make sense. Why? Because of the stuff that we've been fed, because of how we've been formed. We're constantly being formed, right? There's liturgies all throughout this world that are pushing on us, forming us. So What's the point? You know, I say all that to say plausibility structures affect us. They do. And our relationships, our relationships with other people function as plausibility structures. And so with that said, I want to look at these three relationships that we see in Timothy's life that exhibited the beauty of the gospel, that by God's grace, they were used as these plausibility structures that did something inside Timothy that shaped his life. So we're going to look at the beautiful fellowship, the beautiful family, and the beautiful friendship. That's the church. That's um, uh, Timothy's family, uh, his direct family, mom and grandma, and, and then Paul, which honestly, they're all under the rubric of family, but um, we'll get into that a little bit. So in verse 2 here, um, speaking of the, the beautiful fellowship, it says this, verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Okay, Timothy is well spoken of. He had a good reputation among the brothers and sisters. The word there is a Delphoi. It's not just guys. It's, it's male, female. It's brothers and sisters. So he's well spoken of by, by people um, in, in the family, right, in the community there. That's, that's a quick statement, but it's load-bearing. It's load-bearing. Timothy was known 
Guys, he was known by the brothers and sisters in the church family. He lived his life with them, right? His, his convictions were expressed in his actions, and they were known because he was interacting. He was living life with this church family. He was living life with this church family. He was embedded to use the language that I've already heard here, he was embedded in community life, in deep, rich family life. And because of it, he was known. Because of it, the gospel was seen in his life. But he also saw the beauties of the gospel in the life of, of the fellowship, right? He had seen the beauty of the gospel take on flesh in the faith and long-suffering and the difficulties and the patience and an endurance in this fledgling church community. The gospel's beauty was made visible to him in the life of the church. And so it is with, with us as, as the global church and you here as this local church. There's beauty here. But it takes the eyes to see it as you are working through the difficulties of figuring out how to live here uh, in, in the west side, as you're trying to figure out how to be faithful in, in the workplace or, or in your home or even in your own thought life or when you're alone in a room and you're trying to figure out how to live faithfully, when you do that alongside other people, this divine light moves through his body and we see beautiful things. And there is beauty here as you commit to walking alongside each other as brothers and sisters. And so we see the, the gospel um, seen as beautiful by Timothy through the church family. So let, let's now turn um, to 2 Timothy. Uh, so later in, in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And let's look at what I'll call here the, the beautiful family. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, I'll go ahead and read that verse for you. Here's, here's what it says. This is Paul writing again to Timothy. He says, I'm reminded. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, or Uniki, which would be the Greek version of it. Um, so I'll just call her Eunice. It's easier to say. Um, and now I'm sure it dwells in you as well. See, Paul cites... Timothy's mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, right, as, as factors in the harvest of the sincere faith that he has. Sincere, this is a word that just means without hypocrisy. It means you're congruent, like through and through, internally, externally. It means you're the real deal. And Timothy's mom and his grandma, they, they were congruent. They, they were the real deal. What they believed, they, they lived. They lived out what they believed. It was evident, it was seen. And their faithfulness, their, their fidelity uh, was put on display. It was given flesh and blood in the daily life that Timothy witnessed. And I, I'd like to put forward to you that faithfulness and fidelity seen longitudinally, seen, seen over the long haul, is one of the most beautiful things that you can see in this world. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was doing a wedding um, in Colorado in the Rockies, um, it's where I'm, I'm from originally. It was my niece's wedding, um, and it was a beautiful day, beautiful day. I mean, the, the view of the Rockies was, was stellar. Um, the couple, they looked, looked beautiful, all sorts of beautiful things. Um, but at one point during the reception, you know how they do this couple's dance thing to see how long people have been married? Have you guys seen that? So they bring all the couples out onto the dance floor, 
And then, you know, three seconds, and they're like, all right, if you've been married less than a year, off the floor, right? And then they go five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20, 25. It got to 60. There was a couple out there dancing who'd been married 60 years. They were dancing slowly, I should say, but they were dancing. (laughs) Out of all the beautiful things that day, I walked away pierced by that. The beauty of fidelity. You know they went through hell and back together. You know they had hard days. You know they were faced with mess after mess as they raised kids. But the beauty of faithfulness, observing that, watching that, it marks you. And Timothy was marked by the beauty of fidelity that was seen in his mom and his grandma. Now, um, So we have generations, right, of faithfulness uh, from Lois to Eunice, now to Timothy, from grandma to mom to son. So with that said, let's now jump over to 2 Timothy because we get more information here. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Here's what it says. And again, it's still Paul speaking to Timothy. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So continue in what you've learned, knowing from whom you learned it. Not just what you learned, but knowing them, right? You've seen how they've lived. This isn't just content. This isn't just data. This isn't just abstraction, right? This formed them. You know them. Okay. All right. I get ahead of myself. Knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, right? The scriptures, the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't have time for it. How cool is that? What is the point of the Old Testament? To point us to Jesus Christ, right? We'll just leave that there. So mom and grandma were faithful to their God. They delighted in God's word. They taught God's word. But Timothy didn't just get it directly, you know, teaching He got it indirectly by seeing them delight in God's word. It was taught and it was caught. And the impact, right, the impact of seeing someone you know lovingly devoted to something and watching them delight in it and watching them have passion. Like even if you're not passionate about it, sometimes the passion's infectious and you're like, yeah. You watch them and it, again, it marks you. It's magnetic, It's magnetic watching someone passionately and longitudinally pursue something with the entirety of their being. So Timothy not only heard the gospel, he not only heard the scriptures taught, right? He not only had to memorize them, he watched the word of God form the people that he loved, whose lives he closely watched, right? He saw the scriptures produce fruit, and it was good. And it was sweet. So the truth of the goodness of God was displayed in their spirit and word-formed lives. And there's a principle here that I'm sure many of you know well, right? Um, And it goes like this. Uh, I can tell my kids, I can tell my kids what they should do, right? All day long. I, I can tell them, do this, don't do this. But you know what they end up doing? What they see me doing, right? So here's, can, here's how the principle works. You know what? Um, uh, so I have an eight-year-old son, and I have two daughters. And sometimes he gets really frustrated with, with his sisters, uh, and he'll do this, like, monster growl when they do something that annoys him. He's just like, right? Like a little cookie monster thing going on. Um, and I'm like, buddy, like, 
we got to stop growling at our sisters. That's not what we do, you know. Um, and so this keeps going on, going on. And then one day, I'm like, dude, you got to stop growling. And then he goes, Daddy, you growl at me when you're impatient with me. I was like, oh, gosh. All right. <laughs> like from the mouths of babes, right? It's true, right? I had been telling him something, but in my own frustration, like, where did he pick that up in the first place? He got it from me. Right? There was a dissonance between what he saw and what he heard. His precious soul needed me to model the loveliness of patience, not just throw an abstraction out there. And I tell you, the church is really stinking good at throwing abstractions out into the world about love and grace and mercy and growling at the people at the same time. We are called to live lovely, beautiful lives in accordance with the things that we're saying. Timothy heard the scriptures taught, and he saw the goodness and the beauty of truth take on flesh and become real in the lives of mom and grandma. They built the plausibility structures of love and mercy and patience and wisdom that blessed Timothy. And think of their impact We have letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy, precious letters to millions of people across the world for thousands of years because of Timothy and because of how he was formed by God's providence because of the acts of mom and grandma. If you think you have no pulpit because you're not standing behind some kind of lectern, you're wrong. How you live in your home can alter history. Relational evangelism through time and devotion to another reveals things about God, right? It's only in relationship that we can experience faithfulness. It's only in relationship that we can experience forgiveness. It's only in relationship that we can experience compassion. It's only in relationship that we can experience intimacy, being truly known and yet truly loved, And so we need to realize that relational evangelism offers a window into the heart of God, into the very glowing, uh, pulsing, flourishing center of reality. Because when we're relating to somebody in truth and love, we're offering them a window into the fact that God is a relational God. He's triune, right? God the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Spirit, the living love that, that, that dances between the two. We're offering them a view into that. But if we throw relationship aside and it just becomes data and abstraction and it just becomes this functionality, what we're saying really is that we have a functional, um, uh, impersonal God who throws data at you. And again, we're really good at doing that. Relational evangelism combats the dehumanization that is so often seen and it refuses to see people as projects. I refuses to see people as projects or as cogs and some kind of divine machinery that's just chugging away to get God's glory. Right? People are not things to be used. Right? People are beings to be honored and respected. Image bears, and too often evangelization has been seen and taught in a way that has people as projects rather than image bearers of God. Or we're in too much of a hurry to have a, a deep relationship with them and give them the attention that they need and see the wounds that are actually before us because our life is going so fast, we have to get on to the next thing. If we can't slow down, 
if we can't move at a more unhurried pace, how are we actually going to see the people in front of us to know how to minister to them? Right. Okay, so we see the goodness, the beauty, the truth of God come through the plausibility structures built by Lois and Eunice. But there's another relationship here that we can't miss, guys, and this is so good. We have to do a little literary work here for the next couple minutes to open it up, but let's do it. So let's look at the beautiful friendship that we see between Paul and Timothy. So, right, we looked at the, the beautiful fellowship, you know, the family, the church, now the, then the beautiful family tree, mom and grandma, now the beautiful friendship here with Paul. So recall in our passage, this is not Paul's first time in Timothy's neck of the woods, right? This is his second missionary journey. He was there before, two to three years before. So keep this in mind, right? This is so cool. Here, so here's what happens in Acts chapter 14. So we're in Acts chapter 16. Rewind with me. Okay, let's go back two chapters. Acts chapter 14. First missionary journey. Paul, Barnabas, they come to this area. They preach. They teach. They get beaten up. At one point, there's, a, there's a, a, a paralyzed man. He's been paralyzed since he was born. And God, through Paul, heals him. And he gets up and it freaks everyone out. And these, these Greeks with this Greek mindset go, oh, the gods are here. It's Zeus and it's Mercury. So they start to worship Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas are like, no, 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 like, stop. Like, we're just men. And then they preach the gospel and say, look what God has done, right? He distributes good to all the world. So they preach the gospel. Now, then um, you get some guys who, who, who do not like Paul and do not like Barnabas at all coming from 100 miles away to, to cause problems. And they come in, they badmouth bad Paul and Timothy, and then Paul was just being worshipped. Now he's about to get murdered. So they take Paul out and they stone him. Now, I want to read this to you because it's so powerful. Listen to this. This is Acts chapter 14, verse 19. This is the backstory. This is stuff Timothy knew about Paul. He knew this stuff. He might have witnessed it. There's a, there's a high chance that he was there in this verse. So check this out. Acts 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They came from 100 miles on foot, by the way, to get there. They were determined to take Paul down. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. All right. Stoning was brutal, right? Stoning was brutal. It's not like tossing pebbles at someone to bruise them to say, we don't like you, right? It's, it's hurling large, sharp stones uh, to break bones, to crush skulls, and to hemorrhage internal organs. They'd throw you down, pick up these big, sharp, heavy rocks that are all over the Middle East, and they would crush you with these things. And so there's Paul, crushed, unconscious, barely breathing. He's so bad, they think he's dead, so they think they've done their job, and they walk away. He's been so brutalized, he must be gone. Then we hear this amazing thing. Check out verses 20 through 22. So good. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, they had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. Are you kidding me? He gets up. And he doesn't just get up. He gets up and he does what? Where does he go? Help me out. Where does he go? He goes back into the city and then on to another city to preach the gospel. 
Like he goes back into the very place where the violence was. He goes back into the place that spat him out. Paul went back into the place of hurt. He goes back into the place of resistance. Why? To express the love of God. Now, come on. Like, that should make us pause and think. Like, what drives somebody to do that? Like, they literally just lynched you. They pulled you out, and they killed him. They thought they killed him. And then Paul gets back up and walks right back into it. So Paul is either, like, um, a masochist with a death wish. He's just beyond naive or stupid. Or he has a vision of reality, a vision of God that is so beautiful, it compels him towards enemy love for the sake of other people at the cost of his own life. Who is that? That's Jesus. Such a vision for the world, knowing how it's designed, knowing the value of a human soul, that he would get up and go into the middle of the mess, go into the violence at cost of his own life, that enemy love might be distributed, that people might be saved. It's Christ. That's what Timothy saw in Paul. It was a vision of the beauty of the self-sacrificial love that wanted to draw enemies into a family that we might actually enter into what our destiny is. And, and here's the principle. like How we see is how we live. How we imagine the world is how we're going to inhabit the world. And Paul saw the world through the lens of the gospel, saw the beauty of it, and so lived in accordance And Timothy imbibed that, saw that in the life of Paul, and saw Christ through the life of Paul. See, the gospel is the right way, the good way to see the world. The gospel is the good and beautiful truth of who God is and what he's done and doing in the world through his Son and the Spirit. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the good and beautiful truth of who God is, what he's done in the world, um, what he's doing in the world, and he's doing it through his son and his spirit. Paul saw this. Paul, Paul, think of it this way. Paul saw the, the nail-scarred hands of the risen Jesus. Timothy saw the, the scars of the hateful stones on the body of Paul, and it impacted him. My friends, there is nothing more beautiful than a love that's willing to give up its life for the good of others, for the good of your friends. There's nothing more beautiful than a life that is willing to give itself up for the good of enemies, that they might flourish. Paul lived beautifully because he saw beautifully. Beautiful plausibility structures emerged that blessed Timothy. So my friends, the the world is in desperate need You know this, you have friends who you desire to see uh, know Christ. The world is in desperate need of seeing beauty through the church, right? The ways we relate to others, they are windows into the beauties of the gospel. The gospel is the good and beautiful truth of who God is, what he's done and doing in the world through his son and his spirit. Now, let me make one last point, um, one last point of clarification. We don't make the gospel beautiful, good, or true. 
It, by nature, it is. Right? We don't make it beautiful, good, or true. But in living beautifully, we embody its goodness and we help its truth to be seen, to be more plausible to the unbelieving world around us. God has called us into partnership with him by his grace to bless a broken and groaning world. It's a beautiful commission. And so in closing, um, as a point of reflection, I'd like for us to ask these two questions to ourselves. We'll put them up here on the screen. These two questions. In what specific relationship in what specific relationship and in what way is your life a window into the beauty of the gospel? It's not proud to, to identify that because we need to identify those things and we need to thank God for the grace that that's going on in our life and then lean harder into that thing. But then there's the flip side question that we also need to ask ourselves. In what specific relationship and in what way is your life obscuring the beauty of the gospel? And I guarantee you there's going to be an example of each of these in our lives because we are a people in process, right? We are people being formed. We're not there yet. We're not done. So there are ways that we are being windows to the beauty of the gospel, and there are ways that we are obscuring the beauty because of the sin and selfishness in our own lives. And so when you identify the second one, confess it, turn from it, and fill your eyes with the beauty of Christ. As Dostoevsky said, beauty will save the world. And he was right. The deep beauty of the gospel is unhurriedly at work in this world, restoring all things, moving through the church, the sons and daughters of God. So collective church, may, may you see beautifully. And may it lead you to live beautifully for God's glory, the good of your neighbors. And may you build, cultivate plausibility structures for the good and beautiful truth of the gospel. Let's pray.